The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Hey everyone. For anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Rachel. My husband and I started attending Life Centre about a year and a half ago. Today's teachings on 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through to 26. So I'm just going to read the passage and then I'll hand over to Jimmy. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honourable use, some for dishonourable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonourable, He will be a vessel for honourable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. Thanks, Jimmy. Well, good morning. My name is Jimmy. I'm the lead pastor of LCC Caloundra. Thank you once again for joining us for Church Online. And I want to say a big thank you to Rachel for reading out the passage. Rachel, I know that that was not an easy thing for you to do. And so I really do appreciate you being very brave and doing that for us. And big thank you to everybody who's joined us this morning and helped us out with the videos this morning. Um, we're, we're picking up our, our passage this morning, our series in 2 Timothy, from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, which we just heard Rachel read out just a few moments ago. Uh, we've, been, we've been looking at this church over the last few weeks and we've been looking at how the Apostle Paul was writing this letter of 2 Timothy to this young pastor named Timothy who was kind of like a protege of Paul's. Uh, and he's writing to Timothy to really discuss some of the issues that were brewing in his church, this church in Ephesus. And in the opening weeks of our series, we've been looking at, at Paul's general instructions, general instructions to Timothy on how to respond to these issues. And, and now we're going to be looking quite specifically at the deeper issues that were at hand that were happening in the church. Now, we know from previous weeks that part of the issue of this church was that there were elders in this church who were opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's here in these verses that we find out just how dire the situation really was. Sometimes we have a bit of a tendency or even a temptation to idolize the New Testament church. 
I, I've had many conversations with people who will say something to the effect of, uh, you know, we should be like the church in Acts. We should be like the New Testament church. Well, when we look at the church in Ephesus, or at least how it was at this time, this is not a church that we should particularly want to emulate. Yes, the church in Acts, as we read of it in Acts, did start off very, very well, but then something bad started happening. Sinners started joining the church. Many sinners started joining the church. In fact, on one particular day, over 3,000 sinners joined the church all at once. You see, the reality is that when you get a bunch of imperfect people together who are sinners and yet who are also saved, problems are going to arise. And I say this because there's no such thing as the perfect church. I heard a a preacher once say that if you ever do find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll be the one who ruins it. Maybe right now you've joined us and you're on a bit of a hunt looking for the perfect church. You might have tried a few churches around here on the Sunshine Coast. If that's you, I've, I've got some bad news for you. We're not a perfect church either. In fact, we're an imperfect church. We're broken people. We have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been saved by Jesus Christ himself. We are loved by God. And so we get together in community to celebrate that and to join one another in encouraging and edifying one another. But we are by no means perfect. You you might get hurt in this church. we're We're not perfect people. In fact, if you haven't been hurt yet, just be patient. It'll be your turn soon. Someone once said that the church is not a museum for saints. The church is a hospital for sinners. And I say this because in a community, we are called to come together, to be side by side, to love one another, to care for one another, to help one another, to pray for one another. And yet, because we so often revert back to our old ways, we will inevitably hurt one another as we do so. And so the, the Bible provides for us a wonderful guide, a wonderful, wonderful instruction on how we should be as a community of, of believers together, loving one another. And particularly this church in Ephesus is going to really help us understand how we can do this. Here in the Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul is going to once again point us towards the gospel, point us towards Jesus Christ. And he's going to show us that actually Jesus Christ is who we need. He is the answer for all of our problems. So, what were the problems in Ephesus? Well, to put it really briefly, they were fighting amongst one another. Factions had formed, lines had been drawn, and it seemed as if this church was about to snap in half. This this church was on the brink of of splitting. Fighting and quarreling is no small issue in the church. It's a really, really serious matter. It has to be addressed. A friend of mine once visited a small rural church in in a country town, and he said that that church was literally split in two. When you walked in there on Sunday, half the church was sitting on one side, the other half was sitting on the other side of the church, and apparently neither of those two sides had talked to one another for years. It's a big issue. And the reason why fighting and quarreling is such a big issue in the church is because fighting and quarreling so often, if not always, sidelines the gospel. It puts the mission of God to the side and says, no gospel, not now. We're not dealing with you right now. We're not looking at you right now. Right now, we need to deal with this particular issue. Let's put the gospel to the side. 
But the reality is that we need the gospel to pull us out of the funk there that we're in. We need the gospel to pull us out of the, the fights or the quarrels that we might find ourselves in. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't have robust discussion about important theological and social matters? No, not at all. We, we ought to have those, and we ought to do those things in, in love, seeking to build one another up and not, not trying to build ourselves up. Does it mean that we should be silent when we're offended, or does it mean that we should swallow it when someone hurts us? No, not at all. In fact, Jesus gives us very, very clear instruction in Matthew 18 of how to deal with such matters. He says, if someone hurts you, if a brother or sister hurts you, take them aside, just you and them, and have a conversation and just say, hey, listen, this is the place, this is how you've hurt me. And if you bring that before them and they listen to you, then you've gained a brother or sister. And if they don't listen to you, that's when you can bring in some other people. But this doesn't seem to be the case here. This is not how this church in Ephesus was responding at all. It appears that some very big arguments were being had and some very significant theological errors were being made, but these things were happening over very small issues. Very small issues. Paul refers to them as being mere words. They were splitting hairs and becoming picky with small issues. Imagine a judge of a gymnastics competition. The gymnast comes and they do the the floor routine and it's almost perfect. But this judge can't get past a couple of small errors that were made along the way. That's kind of what these people were like. They, They were obsessing over mere words. Paul refers to their arguments in verse 16 as being irreverent babble, and then in verse 23 as foolish, ignorant controversies. Instead of rightly handling the word of truth, these people had swerved away from the truth, and they'd even reached the point where they were saying and and telling people that the resurrection had already happened. Now, it's hard to know what exactly was meant by this, But it sounds as if they were trying to make the Christian faith more palatable for the Greek culture that they were amongst. You see, in Greek culture, the idea of a bodily resurrection was quite repulsive. Greeks didn't like the body. They they thought the body, that heaven was a place where the body and soul were actually separated. And so the idea of a physical bodily resurrection was not appealing at all. And so it seems as if these false teachers were trying to uh, remove some of the offense of the gospel and say, let's not, let's not worry about that. You know, the, the, the resurrections already happened, maybe in some kind of spiritual sense. And by doing so, they, were, they might have been trying to remove some of the offense of the gospel, but also what they were doing is that they were subtracting the hope from the gospel and they were even denying the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ altogether. This is no small deal. This is why it was upsetting some people's faith. It was ruining the hearers, and if nothing was going to be done about it, it would inevitably lead more and more people into ungodliness, and their talk would spread like gangrene. Now, Paul actually calls two of the ringleaders out by name in this. He names them Hymenius and Philetus. Philetus, we don't know much about. But Hymenius, this is actually the second time that Paul's had to address Hymenius. We first hear about him in 1 Timothy as someone who was a leader of the church but had actually rejected the faith. And so by the looks of things, it seems that Hymenius, 
high, high maintenance, how we call him high maintenance, um, he still held an influential role in this church. These guys, Hymenius and, and Philetus, they didn't care for the flock. They didn't love the flock of God. All they wanted to do was spread strife. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about being right. All they want to do is win. They don't want to back down. Have you ever witnessed an argument or even been a part of an argument yourself where the two parties, after a while, end up forgetting exactly what they were fighting about? Neither of them are willing to back down because they, they both want to be right. Well, it seems to be this is, that this was the case of what was happening here. These guys, they were puffed up by conceit, by their knowledge, instead of acting in love to build others up. And this is probably a good time to stop and ask ourselves the question, does that kind of attitude linger in my heart? Am I the kind of person who would try and win an argument rather than for the truth to win out? Am I the kind of person who turns molehills into mountains? Am I the kind of person who misses the forest for the sake of a few small trees? Friends, we are living in a pretty contentious time at the moment. It's not that people these days are worse off than what, what they were a century ago. It's just that this is so much more in our face at the moment. And it seems as if people are primed for the fight. All they want to do is argue. And, and beloved, if we let that desire to always be right, take residence in our hearts. If we allow that urge to fight people and to win, we can only do so if we first reject the gospel. Philetus and Hymenius didn't care about others. They only cared about being right. And that comes from a desire to justify yourself. It comes from a heart that is trying to justify itself. That heart is doing whatever it can to make itself feel right, even if it leaves a, a trail of bodies in its wake. And to those who reject the justification of Jesus and instead try to justify themselves, Paul says something quite harrowing in verse 19. He says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. Now, that's a bit cryptic, but actually what is going on here is that Paul is quoting Moses from the book of Numbers in chapter 16, verse 5. In that particular situation, uh, Moses and the Israelites, they were, they were in, in, the, in the desert. They were just outside of Canaan. There was a whole lot of angst. There was a whole lot of uh, fighting taking place inside the tribe of Israel, inside the people of Israel. And a group of leaders, around 250 of them or more, um, come up to Moses and Aaron and they start, uh, they start vying for the leadership of the nation of Israel. They, they were rejecting God's rule about the temple, God's rules about proper orderly worship. They were rejecting God's priests. They were rejecting uh, Moses and Aaron as God's servants who God had chosen to lead Israel. And so in doing, in doing all those things, they were actually rejecting God. And so in response to this, Moses fall down, falls down flat on his face and says these words that Paul uh, just quotes. He says, the Lord knows who are his. And then the next morning, those who were rebelling against Moses and Aaron were swallowed up by an earthquake and fire from heaven. Now, Paul's words 
might sound harrowing, but, they, but his point is clear. If you name the name of the Lord, it means that you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And you need to then utterly reject any attempt to take justification into your own hands. To try and justify yourself is to embrace sin. It's the opposite of the gospel message. This is why Paul immediately after says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You see, our hearts, they know that they need to be justified. It's the eternal longing of our hearts to feel like we're okay, to feel like we're right. It's, it's like our hearts know that there's going to come one day a day of judgment and, and we're going to be standing before Almighty God and our hearts are desperately reaching for anything that will make our hearts feel like it can stand before God on that day. But the Bible is clear that only those who, who believe in Jesus will actually be the ones who are justified by God on that day. We can only be justified by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And, and for those who are saved, those who have been justified by Jesus Christ, Paul's words, they're not harrowing at all. Paul's words are comforting. The Lord knows who are his are words that help us sleep at night. The Lord knows those who, those who are his are, are words that actually stop us from entering the fight and seek instead to build someone else up, to love them and care for them and, and pray for them. The Lord knows that were his, those who are his are the kind of words that, that prompt us to pray for one another, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Why, why, does, why do those words enable us to do those things? Because we're his. Because we belong to God. We belong to Him. And, and God does not let go of His own. It is God who justifies us, which means that there is nothing that we can do that can unjustify us. Friends, if you join us today and, and you've been searching for things to try and justify yourself, if you've been looking for something to make yourself feel right, my bet is that you're exhausted right now. And there's an invitation here that if you've been trying to justify your own life, your heart's been seeking for other things to make yourself feel right, there's an invitation here to come and put your trust, come and put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can save you from your sin. And he justifies you by giving you his life, which means that, that everything that is true about Jesus becomes true of you and I when we believe in him. And that is just such good, amazing news. Or maybe you've joined us this morning and you already have put your faith in Jesus Christ. But like every other Christian, you keep slipping back into this pattern of trying to take control of your own life. And you do whatever you can to make yourself right before God. You have this, this false belief that God's waiting for you to be a better version of yourself before he'll actually love you. That God's kind of getting sick of you. He's getting tired of you. He's, he wishes you were a, a better Christian like the person who sits next to you at church. Well, if that's you, the invitation again is to come and put your faith in Jesus Christ again, to trust in him and to know that he is the only one who can justify us. The invitation is to come and repent and say, hey God, I've done it again. I, I've, I've tried to be in control of my own life and I need to give that back to you. You see, this is, 
This is the situation in Ephesus. There were these leaders who were rejecting the centrality of the gospel. They were moving the gospel to the side and instead putting in the center of their their thought um, these small and insignificant and foolish and ignorant controversies, even if that meant leading the church into quarrels and fights. And so something had to be done about it. And this is what we're going to focus on for the remainder of the sermon. Paul gives Timothy a list of imperatives, a to-do list, if you will, things that Timothy must do to protect and preserve the unity of the church around the gospel. Now, now Paul says a lot here, and just for the sake of time, we could probably uh, make this a bit easier by boiling all the things that Paul says here into two helpful categories. The first, lead the church to Jesus, and the second, lead like Jesus. These are Paul's instructions to Timothy. Lead the church to Jesus and lead like Jesus. Now, keep in mind, Paul is writing to a pastor. But this doesn't mean that it's not applicable to every single one of us. And so let's pay attention to Paul's instructions here. Firstly, Paul says, lead the church to Jesus. He says from verse 14, Remind them, that's the church, of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So the first thing that Paul instructs Timothy to do is to remind the church of the wonderful truths about Jesus. That's what these things refers to. It's the content of the first half of chapter 2 where we hear these wonderful expressions of the gospel. It's what Shane looked at last week and I encourage you, if you haven't listened to Shane's sermon, go to our website and download it this afternoon. It's a really great one. In light of, um, in light of those who were, who were being so foolish as to deny the resurrection, Paul says, no, Jesus, Jesus Christ is the one who showed us immense grace and love by dying for our sin. And so we should be strengthened by that grace. It's his grace that strengthens us. After he died, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And those who identify with his death will not only enjoy eternal life, but will actually reign and rule with Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. Timothy, says Paul, you need to charge the church not to quarrel. Why? Because of the gospel. Remind them of the gospel. Friends, This is me as your pastor saying, don't fight, don't quarrel because of the the life that we have in Jesus Christ. We have been given absolutely everything we need in Jesus Christ. And so the promise that we might get from entering fights and quarrels and the promise that we might get from those things, it's nothing compared to the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't say this because I think there are fights or quarrels happening in our church I'm not aware of any, but, but if we ever do get tempted to enter into skirmishes with our brothers and sisters in Christ over small issues, we've got to remember the gospel. We've got to remember what we have in Jesus Christ. We've got to remember the peace with God that Jesus Christ forged by dying on the cross for our sins. We've got to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And not only that, but Timothy must work hard at this. 
Timothy is to be like a worker who has not slacked off or become lazy. He's got to be like a worker who is not ashamed of the work that he has put in. So what kind of work does, does Paul have in mind here? It's the work of rightly handling the word of God. A big part of a pastor's time and energy should be put into rightly handling God's word. At the time of writing this and the time of recording this, I've so far spent maybe 16 to 18 hours on this sermon, just getting it ready and getting it prepared to preach to you for this morning on the Sunday morning. Now, that might sound like a lot to you, but this is the word of God. We've got to labor at this. We've got to work at this. It's important to rightly handle the Word of God. I was having a conversation just the other day, actually, uh, with a friend of mine who, he's not actually a Christian, but he was asking me about, me about sermon preparation, and I was telling him this, you know, that how much time it takes to, to write a sermon. And he said, and he was being very well-meaning about this, uh, he said, you know, surely there's a, like a website where you can download sermons and just get the manuscript and, and just preach that. Like, wouldn't that save you a whole lot of time? And I appreciate that he was just trying to save me some time, but my response to him was, mate, I get it, but God's word is just too important for that. This is God's word. It has to be handled rightly. Here at LCC, we believe in the power of God's word, which has been given to us. And pastors are to work hard at handling the word of truth, not swerving away from the word of truth, but making it clear and straight for those who hear it. Timothy needs to work hard at rightly handling the word of truth, bringing the gospel out of God's word and bringing the gospel to bear against uh, upon the lives of, of God's people. Now, did you notice in those two verses, in verses 14 and 15, that Paul on two occasions mentions the fact that these things are done before God? He says to charge the church before God, which means that even though Timothy must work hard, if those who he leads and serves reject God's word and they reject the gospel and opt instead to, to still fight and to still quarrel, then they are the ones who will stand before God in judgment on this. But also, the second time, Timothy must also do his, his best to present himself to God. Now, this is not a rejection of the one who works on our behalf, but it's a reminder to Timothy of his role as one of the teachers of the church. He will be held to account for how he handles God's word. This is why the writer of Hebrews says to the church, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There are some of you in our church who are aspiring to be teachers in this church. That's wonderful. I'm so glad about that. Know though, that those who are set apart to labor in preaching and teaching will be held to account for how they handle God's word. So that's the first point. Timothy needs to work hard to always be leading the church to Jesus. The second point is that Timothy needs to become like Jesus in the way he, need, the way he leads. He needs to lead like Jesus. So Paul introduces this point in verse 20 with an illustration about, uh, about vessels in a house. Now, 
this illustration starts in verse 20, and to fully understand it, we've got to remember what Paul has said in verse 19, that the Lord knows who are his. It's a profound acknowledgement that being a Christian is more than just calling yourself a Christian. It's the Lord who knows who are his. And those who are his, uh, their lives will be marked uh, by, uh, by a devotion to put, putting away sin. They will be marked by a life devoted to putting away sin because of their Savior who died to put away their sin. And this illustration about uh, the house and these vessels helps us understand this. There are some vessels that are set apart for honorable use. These are the true teachers of God's word. And then there are some vessels for dishonorable use. These are false teachers. Someone who desires to teach then uh, needs to depart from all sin and to cleanse himself from all that is dishonorable. Now, this is of course a work that is done by the Holy Spirit, but it is not without our deliberate and obedient and glad and willing cooperation. So what does this look like for Timothy? Well, well, there's three things that we could pull out of this. Firstly, Timothy needs to flee. He needs to flee youthful passions. There's something about being young that can make you feel like you know everything, like a bit hot-headed, like you're convinced that everything you do is right. Um, I think it was Mark Twain or maybe it was somebody else who first said this. Uh, It was something along the lines of, when I was 18 years old, I couldn't believe how stupid my father was. When I turned 21, I couldn't believe how much my father had learned in three years. There's something about teenagers, something about the youth that uh, has this compulsion to always think that they're right, that they know everything. Timothy needs to flee the immature compulsions that used to drive him. The second thing is, the first one was flee. The second thing is pursue. As he flees one thing, he must pursue another. He must pursue righteousness, Paul says. Morally upright living. He must pursue faith, trust and confidence in what God has called him to do. He must pursue love, which is a godly affection for others. And he must pursue peace, which is a genuine fellowship and harmony with other believers. In a church where there were quarrels and fighting, Timothy must be in a, must, he had to avoid being sucked into those disputes. He, and, and when he does actually address them, he needs to come at them by bringing in righteousness and love and faith and peace. Now, this is a really important message for us today. In a world that is currently consumed with hostility, we as a church have a profound opportunity to be the ones who pursue righteousness, to be the ones who are faithful, to be the ones who are loving, to be the ones who bring in peace. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that you let go of your convictions about whatever issue, like whether it's you know, lockdown or the vaccine or uh, masks or, or whatever it is. I'm not suggesting at all that you let go of your, your convictions. You, you need to act according to your conscience in that. But I am saying that as you approach that, that issue, approach it like Jesus. Approach those who disagree with you like Jesus would. So, so what does Paul have in mind here? He has in mind the kindness of Jesus. And this is point three. Be kind. Paul says that the Lord's service must not sorry, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, 
patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness into an environment of hostility, an environment that that Timothy very well might have been tempted to join in on and join the quarrels and join the fights and really defend himself. An environment that even seems by reading this text that Timothy might have taken the bait on some occasions and actually been sucked into them. Timothy must instead enter these things like Jesus would, with kindness, enduring evil, having the ability to teach and correct those who oppose him with gentleness. Why must Timothy do these things? Because, Paul says, I'm going to read the last couple of verses of our passage, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, even though these false teachers were in this church and they were causing destruction and they were doing so by the sounds of things as puppets of Satan, they are still image bearers who might yet still bow the knee to Jesus Christ and call him their Lord. You see, the issue of these quarrels is that they were sidelining the gospel. They were pushing the mission of the church to the side. Quarrels, fighting, These things make it all about winning the argument. But it's not about winning the argument. It's about winning the arguer to Jesus. We might spend all of our time time and energy bickering and fighting with our neighbor over some issue, whereas we should instead be spending our energy and our time winning them to Jesus. Because regardless of who's right or wrong in that scenario, that person's eternity is what is at stake. And that's what we should be playing for. That's the big picture. That's the stuff that Timothy should not be distracted from. That's the stuff that Paul wants Timothy to be laser focused on. This is not about being, what we're talking about here, it's not about being uh, passive pushovers who roll over on every issue. It's about assaulting our enemies with God's kindness. You see, kindness is not passivity. In fact, Paul says in Romans that it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. Now, just think about that for a moment. Think about someone who loves their sin. They they love their sin because their sin puts them at the center of their universe. They, They love their sin. What would it take then... For someone to be so shaken up, for someone to be so totally radically transformed that they are convinced that they no longer should be at the center of their universe, but actually God should be at the center of the universe. It would take something powerful and effective, something incredibly uh, devastating to that person's, that person's life to actually come in and interrupt their life and cause them to actually repent and do that. What would God use? What is this powerful, what is this powerful thing that God uses to lead people to 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 repentance, it's his kindness. His kindness is not passivity. His kindness is power. His kindness is the thing that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Friends, be kind. I'm charging you as your pastor. I'm charging you. Don't quarrel. But instead, be kind. Why? Because God is kind to us. 
He was kind to us first. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins. Even while we were still enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. He was so kind to us. He's so kind to us. And that's what led us to repentance. Be kind. Be kind so that we can lead others, help others to show people, to, to, to see how beautiful and wonderful God is, to bring glory to God. So that people might worship him and serve him and devote their life to him. So, how can we possibly obey all of these things? I'm conscious that we've just had a long list of imperatives, a lot of commands that we have to obey. How do we do this? How do we obey these things? Well, let me put it to you this way. And this is how we're going to finish. A few days ago, a young man from the Gold Coast named Logan Martin competed in the BMX competition at the Tokyo Olympics, uh, and he won gold. He won gold. It was awesome. Now, the way that the BMX competition runs is that all the competitors have two chances to post their best score by doing tricks in front of all of the judges, and the best uh, score out of their two attempts is the, the final score that they'll use to see, how, to, to see where they're ranked. Now, Logan Martin, the Australian guy, he was the last competitor to actually do his ride. And in his first attempt, he scored a whopping 93.3, which put him into the first place, put, put him into first place. Now, he was in first place, but all the riders then still had their second run, their second go at getting their best score. And rider after rider tried to beat his score, but none of them could which meant by the time it came to Logan Martin, who was the last person to do his last ride, he had already won gold before he even attempted his second ride. He had already won gold. It was already his. There he was. He was about to start his second run, and he was already the gold medalist. No one could take that away from him. Nothing could take that away from him. It couldn't be taken away from him at all, and he still had one more go at it. And so he starts his second run, and man, this second run was incredible. Like, I'm no BMX expert, but watching him do these flips and these crazy things over the, over the ramps and all that kind of stuff, and I'll try and put a picture up here on the screen somewhere so you can see one of the crazy tricks that he was doing in the second run. It was nuts. And I was watching it with the kids, and they were squealing with excitement and listening to the commentators. They were like, whoa, this, this is nuts. And it was such an exciting BMX ride because, as the commentator was, was saying, he was riding like a free man. He wasn't trying to win anything anymore. He was, writing, he was writing like someone who had already won gold. And, and his, when, he, when he did the second run, it was incredible. And his first few tricks were absolutely, absolutely amazing. They were out of this world. And then halfway through his second run, something horrible happened. He stacked it. The, he, he, his wheel hit a ledge or something and the bike went out underneath him. And you know what he did? He stood up. Shrugged it off and, and just fist pumped the air. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter. I've already won gold. And the crowd went wild. It was amazing. He had already won gold. It couldn't be taken away from him. And the same thing is true of us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's like we've won gold. And, and the rest of our life now is like Logan Martin's second run. We've won gold not because we've earned anything. We've won gold because Jesus Christ won gold for us. And our life is like his second run. We are free to obey Jesus Christ for the sheer thrill of obeying the one who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
That means obedience becomes a joy. We, we obey God with freedom and complete abandon. And if we do stuff up, we can come back to God and we can repent and then we can shrug it off because that sin no longer defines us anymore. We've already received salvation. The Lord knows who are his. It's me. Like that's, that's outrageous. Of all the people in the world that I would be found to be justified before God because God chose me to be his. That's unbelievable. And this is the good news of the gospel that we get to live in. This is what compels us to obey the way that we should. Friends, we are entering what very well could be a, a difficult time ahead. And as we are called to obey God's word and to be like Jesus, we can rest and live in the fact that what he has called us to do, he has already accomplished for us on our behalf in his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, obey God with the freedom that you have. There is nothing that we can lose. Let's be like Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.